Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Deuteronomy 18. I want to invite you to turn there. We, uh, like I said, we've been in the series called The Story. This is week four. And uh, a guy like me uh, has a particular challenge on a week like this. Because uh, if you've been following, we did creation. As the story unfolds in the scriptures, creation, fall, Israel, and now Jesus. Like, where do you start, right? I mean, you can tackle this from a hundred different angles, but where do you start when you have the topic, the header at the, you know, the top of the page when you go to write a teaching on Jesus? So uh, I have, just this last week, um, I've, been, I've been meeting with, or some of you have, have heard me talk about a, a Jewish lady named Lynn that I've been hanging out with a little bit. She's a rabbi in a synagogue up the way. And this last weekend, I had an opportunity to, to meet with a different uh, Jewish rabbi. And I'll tell you what, uh, for six hours on Sunday and six hours on Monday, uh, 13 of us sat at the feet of a rabbi <laughs> and just listened and learned and talked and shared and questioned. And I have never in my entire life experienced anything like what I experienced last Sunday and Monday. It was by far and away the most uh, eye-opening biblical experience I've ever had. And uh, in this one moment, and if you could imagine a rabbi who lives in 2011, you know, he's not, uh, doesn't, he looks normal. He's wearing, a, you know, like a Patagonia vest and, you know, wool socks or whatever, and he's sitting cross-legged on the floor in front of us. But the way he acted was everything I would ever expect from a rabbi. And in this one moment, he said this, we are talking about scripture and, and Torah and the Bible. And he said, oh, yes. Torah has 70 faces. And we all just kind of went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then somebody goes, and exactly what do you mean by that? <laughs> Which is like our experience most of the time. Well, oh, yeah. Did you get that? Do you know what he means? <laughs> but he said this. He said, Torah, the rabbis would say, has 70 faces. Seventy is a number of completion. It's a number of, right, when Jesus says to Peter, you should, you should forgive 70 times seven, it's this big, huge, full, robust, full number, complete. And he says, Torah has 70 faces, meaning the rabbis believe that you can look at Torah and just continue like a gem, like a diamond. If you've ever seen a really big one, I haven't seen many of them, but when I was shopping for a, a diamond for Laura, you get to look at a few but you can turn it ever so slightly, so many different ways, and you get a different way that the light refracts through it. Uh, and they thought that the Torah, the scriptures were like this gem that you could continue to turn and turn and turn, and it would, it would expose something new about you or about the world or about God. Torah has 70 faces. And so this morning, uh, thousands and thousands have, of teachings have been done on Jesus uh, but I'm going to tackle it, and, and I want to do it in this kind of flow that we've been going thus far, in this story idea. And last week we talked about Israel, and so I want to kind of continue that. And uh, as I was going over this last night, one last time, I didn't write it last night, for those of you who think that all lots of teachers, preacher guys do that. I've done it a couple times, but not last night. Um, I was going over it, and I was looking at my notes, and I thought, I have way too much material right, because we're talking about Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. There's a couple of points that I really, really want to make this morning, and then we'll just kind of see how the time goes. So uh, depending on whether or not I get to all of them, we, we shall see. But here's where I want to start. Deuteronomy chapter 18. If we're going to talk about Jesus, we're, we're framing it in the story. So we have creation, we have fall. 
Creation is Genesis 1 and 2. God creates shalom, uh, harmony, peace, where everything is the way God intended it to be. Everything is in its proper order. Genesis 3 happens. Adam and Eve choose self instead of other. They decide to do something that God asked them not to do. They, they choose to live outside of what God had said is life. And they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin is introduced into the world. That, of course, affects every human. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that we are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. All of us, every single one of us. No, nobody's exempt. So this thing runs through the veins of humanity, this thing called sin, and is essentially, uh, it, is, it is, we talked about shalom is this universal flourishing wholeness and delight, and sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. So any way that we go against what God intended is, is sin. And last week we talked about Israel, that Israel, in Genesis chapter 12, Israel is God's first move, actually second if you count the flood, but you got to do some gymnastics in your mind to think of that as grace. I would tend to say that it is, but it's a long sermon that we don't have time for today. So Genesis 12, God says to Israel, to Abram, I'm going to bless you and make a nation out of you, and through you, the entire world will be blessed. So Israel is God's first attempt to reconcile all things, to redeem all things back to himself. And we learned that the, the end of the Old Testament uh, ends with, uh, not actually ends, but towards the end is a book called Hosea, where essentially Israel is called out. Israel is called an adulteress and uh, a prostitute, one who had given themselves to other gods and other women, so to speak. So that's where it ended last week. And this week we have Jesus as, I would say, the pinnacle, the climax of the entire story. So this is a big week. What I want to say first and foremost is this. Jesus, we have to see him as the leader of a new exodus. So if the primary dominant story for a Jewish person, in the, in the, in, as the scriptures are told, is the exodus. In fact, the, the Jews believe that creation wasn't the, uh, the biggest part of the story. It was actually just sort of the preamble. It was getting, getting to this moment when God acted in history and called the Jews out of Egypt and saved them through the exodus. So the exodus is a huge. It is the most dominant framing narrative in the Jewish mind. So if we're going to talk about Jesus, we have to understand him in light of the Exodus. I want to walk through Luke's gospel. Before I do that, I want to start in Deuteronomy 18. It says this, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. This is Moses talking. You must listen to him. And then skip down to verse 17. The Lord said to me, Moses, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Who was the leader of the Exodus? Moses, right? God comes to Moses and says, get my people out of Egypt. He says, I don't think I can do it. Burning bush, take off your sandals. You should go, not me, somebody else. I stutter, la, la, la. Moses ends up in Egypt and brings him out, brings the Israelites out of Egypt. So if you think about the Exodus, Moses is your guy. This, this particular verse in Deuteronomy says and promises that God will raise up another prophet like Moses. And the Jews believed this is who they were waiting for. This is who they were anticipating, this Messiah-like figure. And this is one of the verses that they get that from. So this is who we're talking about. Jesus, looking through him, looking at him through the lens of Moses and the Exodus. Now turn to Luke's gospel. 
You could do this in every gospel and a lot of Paul's letters. We're just going to do it in Luke. And I want to submit to you this morning that the gospel writers frame Jesus in this exact kind of lens. A prophet like Moses who's leading a new exodus for a new kind of people in the world, a new Israel, so to speak. Look at verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 32. Before, you, before we do that, did you know that from uh, Egypt to the exile of the, of the Israelites, there were 430 years, and from Babylon to Jesus, guess how many years? About 430. Interesting. Now Luke 1.32 says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is what the prophets said about this new Moses, that he would, he would uh, rule from the throne of David. Look at verse 35 of chapter 1. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and, the, and uh, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be called the Son of God. If you go back in the Psalms, most, uh, uh, most of the references are in the Psalms, but other places as well. When you read the sons of God, plural, it's talking about Israel. So there's this phrase in the Old Testament, the sons of God, and it spoke specifically of Israel. Now Luke and the other gospel writers are taking that phrase, sons of God, and making it singular and calling Jesus the son of God. He's also doing a lot of things politically with Rome and, and empire and Caesar, but he's doing something very Jewish as well, calling Jesus the son of God and giving him that title. Go to verse uh, 14 of chapter 2. 14 of chapter 2 is a small snippet of a quote from the Old Testament. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. You, of course, recognize this. This is uh, from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 says, for, us a for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. So this is what the prophet said of this Messiah, that he would come and he would rule on David's throne, that of his kingdom there would be no end. Uh, if you go on in, in chapter 2, verses 25 and verse 38, introduce two people, Simeon and Anna. Both of them speak of this Messiah, and they do it in this kind of language, where they say the they're waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Israel. So Simeon and Anna are waiting for God to do something in and through this Messiah. They're waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Israel. Very similarly, Exodus kind of language, the redemption of Israel, the consolation of Israel. And they say that this person has come when Jesus shows up. Look at verse 23 of chapter 3. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son of, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, 21 and 22. All the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. He was praying. Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven and says, You are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Did you know that Moses... When he was taking the Israelites out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. Yes, right? You know this. This is Bible trivia. This is not a very difficult thing to know. It's a, it's a, a, a major motion picture now. Do you know what they called that moment when, it, when Israel and Moses crossed the Red Sea? Any guesses? 
birth. We talked about that last week. Yeah, this, this birth idea. But the rabbis talked about the specific movement of Moses through the Red Sea as the baptism of Moses. Very interesting. They call it the baptism of Moses. People talk about why did Jesus need to be baptized? Like, that's kind of a theological conundrum if you start really thinking about it. Why does the Son of God, Jesus himself, need to be baptized? Especially since that there really isn't a huge precedent for baptism in Jewish culture at that point. Why does he need to be baptized? I would say for one reason, and a host of others, but for one The Jews understood Moses moving across the Red Sea as the baptism of Moses. And so now this new prophet, like Moses, shows up on the scene, and what does he do? He gets baptized. And and the gospel writers make sure to note it because they're painting Jesus in this light. Chapter 4, Jesus is led out into the desert for how many days? 40. How many days or years were the Israelites out in the desert? 40. Did you know that the number 40 occurs 40 times in the Old Testament? And each time it occurs, the number 40, the rabbis believe that often, not every time, but there is this, something is dying and something is being born. So something is dying and something is being birthed. So when the the writers say, he was out in the desert for 40 days, something is dying and something is being birthed. What's dying is Israel as they knew it, and what's being birthed is new Israel as Jesus is about to install it. This is my favorite one, and I'll stop here. Uh, Luke 4, 28. There's this, there's this classic uh, story where Jesus says something that everybody gets all fired up about, and they lead him out to the edge of this cliff. We'll pick it up in chapter 4, verse 28. It says this. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of, of the town, and they took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. Somebody read the next verse. What does it say in your Bible? That's the end of the story. (laughs) By the way, there's this huge moment where these people are furious. They are super mad at Jesus because he said something about himself that they don't agree with. They think it's blasphemous. And so they lead him out to the edge of a cliff and they're about to kill him like dead. Throw him off the edge of a cliff. And Luke says, and Jesus passed through the crowd. He walked right through them, and that's the end of the story. Why would Luke end the story that way? Because if Luke's trying to paint Jesus in Exodus kind of language, in Exodus kind of light, it makes perfect sense that Jesus, the new Moses, would pass through the crowd, death on both his right and on his left. And that's the end of the story. It's fascinating, fascinating. Uh, chapter 9 is the transfiguration. If you, if you have time, go back and read it. You'll notice all of the things that happen in the transfiguration sound a lot like Sinai. Thunder, lightning, a cloud, all sorts of crazy things going on. Go back and read the Sinai account, and that's exactly the same kind of language. Over and over and over again, I won't belabor the point anymore. Over and over and over again, the gospel writers and Paul paint Jesus in new Exodus kind of language. Why? Because they believed that Jesus was the bringer, the the one who would usher in a new kind of Exodus for a new kind of Israel. Let me break it down for you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, my favorite, all, all the prophets, they tell us of a new hope that is coming and a fresh start, a new movement, a new song, a new marriage, a new covenant between God and people. 
to replace the broken relationships that happen. They say that a new king is coming from the line of David who will bring justice and righteousness, a new exodus from exile. Now, the Jews, of course, were back in the land, but in their psyche, there was this idea that they were, while they were in the land, when Jesus shows up, they're still under the oppression of the Romans. So there's this psycho, there's this, there's this, uh, I wouldn't call it a psychological exile because that's, we were totally reading into the text, but if you read uh, first century literature, there is this sense in which that Israel is still in exile, even though they're in their own land. Jesus is bringing a new exodus from exile, and it's not just a Jewish exile, but I would argue a human exile. So you might be asking the question, okay, that's all interesting, Mike, a very interesting historical stuff. What does that have to do with us here and now? I would submit to you this morning that Jesus, not only in his time in, in first century Jewish Palestinian place, said to the people there, I want to do something new, and there's a new exodus from a new exile or a different kind of exile. I would say, he might say the same thing to you and I today. How many of you, how many of us, how many, of, how many people do we know, friends, family members, coworkers, that we might say are, we use the language in bondage, or like they're, they're just chained to something. They're addicted to something and they can't get out. That's exile. Exile is to be stranded from where you should be. It's to be millions of miles from where you need to be. And I would argue that Jesus would say the same thing this morning. That for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, he's wanting and offering a new exodus from whatever exiles we find ourselves in the midst of. Not just exile from Jerusalem, but exile from Eden. So I would say first and foremost that we have to understand Jesus in this new exodus kind of language. I would say secondly that we have to understand Jesus as true Israel. So if, if Israel was supposed to be this group of people in the world who did something and acted a certain way, I think we need to see Jesus as the true representation of what Israel was supposed to be. Let's start with revisiting Israel. Remember, and I, and I, I want to uh, offer this morning that Israel's not so much a specific place or geographic location as much as it is a spiritual state. Let me say that again. Israel's not so much a specific place, a geographic location, as much as it is a spiritual state of being. If you think about the Exodus story, you have these names, Egypt, uh, even Hebrew, Israel. These all have meaning to them, and actually they, 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 they start to open up the story as you understand what they mean. The word Exodus, or the word Egypt, if you were to break it down etymologically, actually means the narrow place. And some would, 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 would add to that, the narrow place where God cannot be worshipped. So Egypt is this place, it's a physical location on the Nile, uh, southern Mediterranean, but it's actually a spiritual state of being. The narrow place where God cannot be worshipped. And all through the story, the, the Jews have these moments of choice where they could go this way or that way. So if Egypt is this place where God cannot be worshipped, the narrow place, Israel means one who struggles or wrestles with God and is able. You remember Jacob when he wrestles with the angel and he does the thing with his hip and he says, bless me, I'm not going to let go of you, and he changes his name to Israel. The actual word Israel means the one who struggles and wrestles with God and people and is able. And then the word Hebrew, interestingly enough, actually means to cross over. 
which totally plays into the, what we talked about last week, where is the, the rabbis believe that the nation of Israel was birthed at the Red Sea, where they crossed over from one side to the other. So you have all these names that mean something, and if you understand the Exodus story in that way, now you move on and you say, if Jesus is true Israel, it assumes that there was a counterfeit or a failed attempt or a, a, a false Israel. What God intended for Israel was not accomplished in and through the people Israel. What God intended for Israel as a spiritual state of being in the world was not accomplished in and through Israel the people. Maybe you could say it this way. Israel, the people, failed to live into Israel the spiritual state, which, is in, which was intended to be good news for the world. So God covenanted himself with Israel, this group of people in the world, and through this group of people, he promised blessing and redemption for the world. It was a promise that God made. So God went out on a limb. He covenants himself to this group of people, and he says, I promise to bring blessing and redemption through you into the world. So here you have Israel, this group of people who are failing to live into the spiritual state that they're supposed to be, and you have God's word on the line because he's covenanted himself to this group of people. He said, I, I am yours and you are mine. Like husband and wife, we're together, and Israel's failing to live up to their end of the deal. So what do we do? If you're God, your word is on the line. You've promised blessing through this group of people. With Israel's failure to live into their name, God's word and, and promises on the line, and Jesus as true Israel is the fulfillment of, Israel, of God's covenant with Israel. Do you guys see the connection there? If Jesus is this representative of what Israel was supposed to be, as he fulfills that, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. When he fulfills that, God's word, which is on the line, his promise to bring blessing and redemption is fulfilled and brought together. So we have to see Jesus in light of this idea of true Israel. Now, this is the one I'm probably the most excited about. Turn to Genesis chapter 37. And I think we're probably going gonna to stop after this one. Genesis 37, this is the story of Joseph. And you might be thinking to yourself, self, this is a message on Jesus, and we're talking about Joseph. So this, is, this had better be interesting, and I promise you that it would be and will be. This is the story of Jacob. And I would say, third and finally, we have to understand Jesus as the Father's sacrificial gift in the name of Shalom. Let me repeat that. We have to see Jesus as the Father's sacrificial gift in the name of Shalom. Genesis, or Genesis chapter 37, it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. Verse 2 says, this is the account of Jacob, Joseph. Now, this is the first and the only time in all of the scriptures where the word toldoth is used, which means lineage or genealogy, and then a genealogy is not given. The only time in the scriptures. So if you're a Hebrew, if you're a Jew reading this, immediately you're, you're expecting to hear firstborn in birth order, sons in birth order following this is the line of, of Joseph, but, or of Jacob, but you don't get that. You get this is the line of Jacob, Joseph. And in the Hebrew, there's no uh, punctuation. There's no commas, no periods, no separations. So we read this. This is the account of Jacob, period. New thought. Joseph was a young man. It's not how it reads. It reads, this is the line of Joseph, or this is the line of Jacob, Joseph. So it's a stark, startling moment, at which point you're thinking, what's going on here? 
Verse 3, it skips down and it says, Now Israel loved Joseph. So this is an interesting part because previously he had been called Jacob in the story. So Jacob, this is the line of Jacob, and now the author switches to Israel. Why? Because Israel is not only his name, but it's also this spiritual state. It's also this, this thing that's supposed to be in the world. So Israel loves Joseph, it says. Israel loves Joseph. I want to submit to you this morning that there are these moments in Scripture over and over and over again where, where basically the person in the story has a moment and they can either see the future, the divine future in the sacred present, or they miss it. Joseph is the key at this point in the story to what's coming in Jesus. And there are moments, especially even in this story, when Joseph's brothers come back from, from, uh, from famine and they come to Egypt and they're standing in front of Joseph. And Joseph sees them and they don't recognize him. They don't see him. And it happens all over the place where somebody is standing right in front of the person and they don't see them. The question is, do you see it? So Israel loves Joseph. Jacob, Israel, sees this person, sees Joseph. He loves him. It goes on and he says, more than his other sons because he had been born into him in his old age and made him richly ornated, uh, or ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Now this is really, really fascinating. The, the word there has this, the, the root word of hate actually has Joseph's root word in it. So the Hebrew reads, they hated Joseph because he was Joseph. Have you ever been hated in life where someone didn't like you? More often than not, it's, it's because they didn't see you for who you really are. They hated you for something that you would probably say you weren't even that. But what's it like to be hated and seen for who you are? What's it like to be hated to be you. Verse 8. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more. Same word. Then he has another dream. He says, uh, skip down to verse 10. When he told this to his father, as well as his brothers, his brothers rebuked him, or his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down before you? His brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept the matter in mind. Now verse 12 says, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Israel again, not Jacob, Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, and I'm going to send them to you. And the next word, what does it say in your text? What does it say? Very well. Does anyone have anything different than that? I'm ready to go. The Hebrew word is hineni. This is what Samuel said when God said, Samuel, Samuel, hineni. This is what Moses said when God said, Moses, Moses, hineni. The word means here I am or all of me is here. What do you want? So Joseph says this to his father, and his father says, 
Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. This is a terrible translation of the original. Terrible. Because what you miss is absolutely critical. It is crucial. And if you miss it, you miss the whole thing. What it says in the Hebrew is go and see about the shalom of your brothers and the shalom of their flocks. What do we know about shalom? Shalom is peace, it's wholeness, it's, it's universal flourishing and delight. So Joseph is told by his father Israel, go and see to the shalom of your brothers and the shalom of their flocks. Do you remember the first story of brothers in the Bible? What is it? Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain kills Abel. The next one? Isaac and Ishmael. What happens? Ishmael is sent out of the camp. The next one? Jacob and Esau. What happens to Jacob? He's sent out of the camp. When brothers get together in the scriptures, one of two options typically happens, either death or exile. Here you have a father set, telling his son, go and see to the shalom of your brothers. Do you remember what, what uh, Cain said after he killed Abel? Am I? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guard? Essentially what he's saying is this. Am I to see to the shalom of my brother? Is that my responsibility? And the answer is yes. Because humanity was not designed to live for itself. It's not about me. It's about you. And for you, it's about me. So when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? He says, am I to seek after the shalom of my brother? Is that my responsibility as a human being? And the answer is yes, it is. And this is where we go wrong. So here you have a story about a, a father whose name happens to be Israel who sends his son, his most precious son, the one who has the divine, the, the, the divine future right there in the present. Joseph is the key to the divine future. And Israel sees him and he says, Joseph, my son, go into what? Into hatred, into a world, into a situation with your brothers who want you dead. Go into that situation and seek the shalom of your brothers and your, their flocks. If you're not getting this yet, you have Israel, a father, who sends his son, that which is most precious to him, into a world that hates him and wants him dead, seeking shalom, peace, wholeness. anyone ever told you that we don't need the Old Testament, they're an idiot. It's the same story over and over and over again. Different characters, different names, but it's the same story. A father sending his son into a world that hated him, who wanted him dead, to seek the shalom of his brother. Paul talks about Jesus as the brother of humanity, as the second Adam. Jesus, as a human, is our brother. 
And this is who is sent into the world on behalf of the Father to seek shalom. We're going to celebrate communion today, I think fittingly. But what I want you to hear is this. What we're about to do is something specific that Jesus told his followers to do in remembrance of him, to, to recommit themselves to him, uh, to, to remember this story. But you have to understand Jesus. I would submit, I would, I would want to offer to you this morning, insofar as we understand Jesus as he's connected to Israel, the story just gets bigger. It just gets, it's, it's like more color is added. It's like we've moved from black and white to full color, you know, from 786 to 1080p. You know, it's like high def. And when you see it like that, bam, I mean, it just pops. I watched the Masters a couple years ago for the first time in HD. It's like I'd been given crack, you know? And I can never go back when I watch it on regular definition now. It's like, where, who, I can't even see them. Who are they? Is that a person or a tree? Which is actually what the blind man said in one of the Gospels when Jesus heals him. He says, I just see trees walking around. And Jesus does something else, and he's like, ah, I see clearly. I hope that you get who Jesus is. Not only in, li in light of the story and of Israel and all of that, but this is God's answer to Genesis 3. Where shalom is lost, this is his answer by sending his own son into a world that hates him to seek shalom, peace, and wholeness. This is the Jesus that we worship, this is the Jesus that we follow, and this is the Jesus that says to you this morning, here I am, seeking shalom, seeking wholeness, seeking restoration and redemption. What do you do with that? Uh, I'm going to pray in just a moment. I just want to give you some instructions. There are, uh, there's a number of different communion stations around. Um, if you look closely, there's white grape juice and there's uh, wine on one side, grape juice on the other. So take your pick. Uh, we'll just dip the bread in the cup and take it. Uh, and I want to just encourage you to move to a table where there is uh, a communion station. Upstairs, there's uh, on each end. And if you're with people, uh, for me, communion is about relationship. It's about us. It's about community. Uh, and this is, I think, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11 so ha like emphatically that if we eat this meal in a way that uh, allows people to be on the outside and to be cast out, we do it, we do it at great peril because it betrays the meaning of communion. And so as you come to this table today, if you follow Jesus, this is a symbol of the, the body of Christ and the blood of, of Christ shed for you and broken for you. Eat in remembrance of him. And if you, don't, if you don't follow Jesus, then enjoy the bread. It's a symbol. It's a metaphor. There's nothing special about it. So as Ben plays, uh, he's going to lead us, and uh, I'll pray. He's going to start. And I just encourage you to get up. Uh, and serve, if, you, if you're comfortable, serve each other communion. Uh, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Uh, and let's eat together if we can. Let me pray.
God, thank you for this day, for the beauty of this meal, uh, this moment that is a moment here now in 2011 and yet has been a moment millions and millions and millions of time in history where the church of Jesus Christ has gathered and said, in this bread, we connect to the story, the body of Jesus, and in this wine, we connect to the blood of Jesus. And we remember it. We want to hold it closely. We want to take it in. We want it to become a part of our story. Not that we want to... We want it to become a part of our story insofar as we want you, Jesus, to to empower us to be the kind of people you want us to be in the world. So as we eat, as we take of these elements, God, would you be present in our midst? Um, Would you continue to call the names of those who have yet to say yes to you? Would you meet them and offer yourself as the brother sent by the Father to seek shalom, to answer the problem of evil and sin in the world? So we remember you, Jesus.